Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Pat Zietlow-Miller, my very first picture book author. Pat has received multiple awards for her many picture books, titles including her debut, Sophie Squash, Wherever You Go, The Quickest Kid in Clarksville, and the newly released Wide Awake Bear. Pat joined me today to talk about how querying a picture book is much different than querying for a novel, and the misleading ease of each project being 700 words or less. Born to privilege, trained for command, destined for danger. Master and Commander meets Sarah J. Moss in a seafaring adventure of duty, love, magic, and a princess's quest to protect her kingdom on her own terms. Air and Ash, an addicting new YA fantasy adventure by Alex Lydell. You are a picture book author. You're my first picture book author. Maybe explain how that process is different for picture books because I don't have any experience in that area and I'm sure I have some listeners that would love to know more about that. So please enlighten us if you can. Well, I think the basic process of getting an agent if you're a picture book writer is similar to getting one if you write middle grade or YA. The one thing that's different is that an agent usually won't sign you up if you just have one picture book. They want to have somebody who they know is going to have a potential career as a picture book writer. So when I was talking to my, my agent before she signed me, she looked at my first book and said, I really like this. What else do you have? And I sent her like five other things that I had written and were pretty much ready to go. And then she looked at those and then we talked some more. So if you just have one book that has all your eggs in that one basket, you're probably not quite ready to go agent hunting because they will ask you and they want to see that you have other picture books. It is definitely different than from a novel fiction or nonfiction writer attempting to get an agent because you only need to have one finished manuscript. But that definitely makes sense with a picture book. What typically is your word count for a picture book? The rule of thumb is 500 words or less. I write a little longer for picture books. In most cases, some of mine are up around 700 words. 700 or less is a really good spot to be in. If you're higher than that and there's not a really good reason to be, you probably have extra words there that you don't need. That's really interesting. So yes, you would be able to bring more than one project to an agent that they would be able to look at and see, for one thing, whether you can write, of course, but also get a sense for your brand? Oh, definitely. I think they want to know, do you have a voice? Do you have a point of view? Is there some level of consistency between the types of things that you submit? Not that all your stories have to be the same format, but can you consistently deliver a quality manuscript? Picture books where they are short, you still have to put a lot of work in to get them ready. I think having many lets them know that, okay, this is somebody who's serious and who can deliver over the long term. I actually found my agent. I hadn't been actively looking for one because I had always heard that it's really hard to get an agent if you're a picture book writer, especially if you don't also illustrate and I don't illustrate. Then I sold my first book, Sophie Squash, through the slush pile, which was one of those one in a million stories where somebody pulled it out and actually wanted it. And then when they made an offer, a friend of mine who writes YA said, well, you're going to get an agent, right? And I said, oh, no agent's going to want me. And she said, Pat, you have to try to find an agent. So I contacted an agent I had seen speak at an SCBWI conference and had been really impressed with. And I said, here's the book. Here's the offer. Are you interested? 
And I'm sure having an offer made her more interested. But then she came back with, what else do you have? And we had several long conversations before she actually agreed to rep me. I think getting an agent has been the best thing that could have happened to me because she's really helped me sell books that I don't think I would have sold otherwise. This brings me to something that I think is really interesting because as a writer for teens, I write YA, I come across occasionally readers or even non-readers who tend to think that YA or books written for teens take less talent to write or have less merit than a book written for the adult market. Of course, that's very frustrating, but I have to think it is equally frustrating for a children's picture book author because my experience in being a writer and having aspiring writers come talk to me is that they seem to think that's the way to get in to start because it's easy because they're short. My experience as a writer is the less room they give you to work in, the more talent you've got to have. Well, thanks for saying that. I think writing well in any genre, whether it's adult, YA, middle grade, chapter books, picture books, is really much harder than people think. But I do think, especially with picture books, I get so many people, when they find out that I write picture books, they say, oh, I've always wanted to write a picture book. And maybe some afternoon when I don't have anything to do, I'll sit down and do that. And I always kind of like just have to breathe because many of my picture books for all 500 to 700 words... I can spend months, if not a year, agonizing over them. I always say picture books are kind of like playing Sudoku, but with words. You have this framework, this very particular framework that you have to stay inside of, and everything has to line up in multiple ways. If you mention something at the beginning, it's got to wrap into your ending. You can't just have anything that's there for no reason. Every word plays a part to fill out your framework. So like a Sudoku puzzle, it all adds up properly. And you can get two thirds of it right and then spend three months on the last third trying to figure it out. So for me and other picture book writers that I know, you agonize over those 700 words. It's not like you just sit down, type out any random 700 words and go, yeah, I'm good. And if you're not, you're never going to get published because your agent will come back, your editor will come back and they'll be like, this isn't right. And usually you know it isn't, and you just have to slave over it until it is. And I kind of like that. I like working within that framework and seeing if I can do it. I look at people that write longer stuff and I go, man, that's a lot of work. I like the structure of a small, defined space. And when you get it right, it just feels awesome. My experience as a children's librarian, when you're reading a children's book, there is a veneer of simplicity about them. However, as a writer, when I look at them, I can see that structure. I can see the thought that goes into the sentence structure and the amount of words that goes on each page. I can see that as someone that is not just a consumer, but as a writer, I know that I couldn't do it for one thing, but in a way it's an insensitivity that others seem to believe, oh yeah, I could do that in an afternoon. It's like, no, you actually couldn't. (laughs) But I would love to see you try. I never say that. I always want to. I had one man, in his mind, he was paying me a compliment. It was at a book festival. And he came to my table, glanced at my book and said, not a drop to drink. I read that book. And I was like, oh, okay. He was an older man. He looked around. He was like, you're in the YA section with the teens? And I said, yeah, I, I write YA. And he said, your, your book is YA? I said, yes. And he goes, well, I'm just very surprised. I was trying to be nice. I was like, oh, do you mean because of the content? And he was like, no, because it's good. It's a lovely backhanded compliment. Um, Thank you. And and you're good looking for an older man. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. And I find it interesting, too. When people get nostalgic, it is often for those picture books that they read when they were children. 
that's so impactful and you have the the opportunity to play a role like that in many people's lives it's also testament to that power of literature and to the power of that book because so many of us that are born in the same generation have the same books that we love and that are icons of our childhood so for me one of them would be caps for sale and one of my friends from college had caps for sale for some reason we ended up having a conversation about children's literature and we could recite that book to each other partly because we read them to tatters when we were little but it's also because that book has a structure that allowed it to for one thing sustain you can still buy a brand new copy but for another it roots into little minds and it grabs hold so that you're 30 and you can still recite it to be that person that has that impact to reach out and touch all these little minds i think it's glorious it's really something to aspire to Coming up, Pat on the importance of using critique partners who write in your genre and why a children's book writer who wants to be traditionally published should not seek out an illustrator before submitting their work. Being a teen in America can be a nightmare. From bullies to love gone wrong and first jobs, a lot can happen to scar someone. But the stakes grow higher in these terrifying tales where monsters, real and imagined, claim your sanity and your life. Zombies, serial killers, imaginary friends, werewolves, witches, and much more are the monsters that inhabit these stories. Feed your inner monster with My American Nightmare, Women in Horror Anthology by Azura Knox, perfect for fans of American Horror Story. Are all of your critique partners published authors as you are? Because I know sometimes with critique partners, You want to have people that are on around the same level as you are. There's a danger in having someone that is vastly more experienced than you are because you might take their advice even when they might not know exactly what is best for your project. And then, too, I think there becomes an issue if you have a critique partner that you don't necessarily think is at the same level as you are, and then you may not take their feedback seriously. So what's your opinion when it comes to that? Well, I'm in two critique groups. Each of my critique groups, there's one author that is not yet published, but the rest of them are published authors. And I think you're right. When you're you're choosing a critique group, it's all about fit. You want some people that are at a similar level to you, whether they're published or unpublished. And you want people who can provide feedback that really resonates with you. I've been in critique groups where there have been people whose feedback just consistently hasn't resonated for me, and it doesn't mean I'm right and they're wrong. It just means that it's not a good fit. So you want a critique group where you feel comfortable and trust the feedback you get from people so you can evaluate it and make good choices. Because a lot of times, a lot of people in my critique group will come to one area of my story and say, I don't get what you're trying to do there, or this section isn't working. And they may all have different ideas about what the best way to fix it is. But if there's a consistency of opinion that it's wrong, I can go in and look at everybody's opinions and then come up with my own way of fixing it. Yeah, that's really interesting. My critique partner that I use often, she always calls it option Q. She says that she'll get feedback from all of us that read for her if everyone has a problem with the same situation, but she doesn't think that our fix ideas are the right fix. She comes up with her own, and that's option Q, which I think is probably the best way to approach it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times people, they might know it doesn't work, but they might not know exactly why. And so 
it's great information to know that something isn't getting across. And then, you know, you as a writer can go back into your story and say, how can I make it better? The good thing is if you trust your critique group, if you get a lot of people saying something doesn't work, even if it's something you know exactly what you meant, if you trust them, you're still going to try to make it so it's very clear to them what you're doing. Where if you don't trust them, you're going to go, no, I'm fine, and, and potentially miss making a very important change. Yes, that's very true. I recently read for a friend of mine, there was a section of about two or three paragraphs that she thought was really, really funny. And it was not moving the plot forward. It was not actually anything that worked into the story itself at any point. And for her, she just thought it was fall down funny. It just didn't land. And another critique partner that I'm also friends with told her the same thing. She was like, that's just not funny. I don't know why you're so in love with it. And she laughed and she was like, okay. She said, obviously what I find so hilarious about this situation is not getting translated to the paper because neither one of you thinks it's funny and I know your senses of humor and if I had done this right you would think it was funny so I have to cut it even though personally when I read it I think it's hilarious obviously I didn't communicate it properly exactly I think when you're a writer you read your own stuff and in your head, you fill in all the little backstory and all the little what you meant to do and everything you know that somebody coming to it for the first time doesn't. And so things sometimes make a lot more sense to you than they do to someone else. And that's why you desperately need a critique group. Did I get my point across in the way I wanted to? Yeah, absolutely. And especially with humor, I think it can be difficult because you're right. There are so much informing your own sense of humor, the way you even hear the line being delivered in your head matters a lot. And if you didn't nail that just right, it's not going to land. So that brings me then to asking, are all of your critique partners also children's book authors? Yes, we all write children's books, and the vast majority of us are focused on picture books. There's a couple of people who are working on middle grade or a chapter book or something different. Well, all of us have written at least one picture book, and most of us, that's our primary focus. And as much as I like reading other levels of children's lit and adult lit, I think it's really important to have people in your critique group that write what you write. I'm friends with an author who's, who's writing an adult novel, and her critique group that she's told me about has people doing like everything you can imagine. And she said, it's hard because sometimes people writing something so totally different than me, they just don't get what I'm trying to do. It's just a totally different thing. So I think if you can find a critique group of people doing what you do, you're going to get stronger results sooner. I agree with that entirely. There's no doubt that you need to be working with people that are familiar with the tricks and the tropes that are particular to your genre. For example, I recently read for one of my critique partners who does write YA and began that way, but is starting to venture into writing some women's fiction, more along the romance line. And so she sent it to me. She's like, hey, can you read this and tell me what you think? And I was like, yeah, sure. The voice was amazing. It was great. And this was something that I really enjoyed reading. It was a great, fun read. But you actually spent three paragraphs talking about this guy's abs. And I was like, it was just overkill. And she's like, I understand that that's your reaction as a writer, but I'm telling you that that's exactly what the readership expects in this genre. They want three paragraphs of ab description. And I was like, okay, because she reads extensively in that arena. And I was like, okay, hey man, you know that market. Even in that subtle shift from YA to writing more of a romance-driven women's fiction for adults, 
it changes what the readership wants and the style that's expected changes. I told her, I was like, I'm good for helping you edit because she needed her word count brought down by about 20,000. And I'm really good at wielding that axe. I think I was helpful to you on cutting down your word count. When it comes to content, I didn't have anything to offer because I don't know that genre and I don't know that audience. And you're right. When it comes to critique partners, it's very important to be working with people that are on that same ship as you. Like we might all be navigating the same seas, but there are definitely ships. And you want to make sure that you're on the one with your people when it's time to hand out your work. A lot of aspiring picture book authors tell me they are working with or have already hired an artist to illustrate their book. It's my understanding that most traditional publishers prefer to pair the artist with the author. So what's your take on this? Should a picture book author search out an illustrator ahead of time or not? If you want to be a traditionally published picture book author, you should not search out your illustrator ahead of time. If you're going to self-publish your book, then you have to, and you should. But if your goal is to be published with a traditional press, finding an illustrator ahead of time is going to make it much harder for you. And here's why. All editors want to see at a traditional publishing house is your story, your words, no illustrations, no illustrator notes about what the art should look like, just your story. Because the first thing they judge is, is your story strong enough to be purchased and turned into a book? And then if it is they will bring in someone called the art director and the art directors, major publishing houses have connections with illustrators around the world. And then one of their favorite things to do is look at your story and say, okay, what's the style of the story and who's the absolute right illustrator that I can find to bring that to life. And that's a wonderful benefit of being traditionally published because if I were publishing my own book and needed to find an illustrator, I don't have access to all those people. I don't know who is an awesome illustrator in another country who might be just perfect for my book. And also I probably couldn't afford to pay them the amount of money that they would expect to be paid, which a traditional publisher would pay them. For my first book, Sophie Squash, my illustrator was from Switzerland. She did a marvelous job. I've never met her. English is not even her first language. I would never have found her on my own. And each of my picture books that I've sold, I've been matched up with a really talented person who is just the right fit for that book. And that's another thing I really like is with each book, I get to work and meet somebody new that I would never have found on my own. I know some people, when I mention this at conferences, that you don't need to find the illustrator, they're shocked. I mean, there's really no other word for it. They're just shocked because they have a hard time giving up the level of control. But the house has to be blue, and the character has to have blonde, curly hair. I saw an editor speak once, and she said, no, he doesn't. Your character could be a rabbit. Deal with it. And it's true. I mean, I wrote a picture book once, and I assumed that the characters would be people. And when I got the artwork for Wherever You Go from Eliza Wheeler, the characters were animals. Initially, I went, oh. And then I looked at it and went, these are the best animals I've ever seen. That's one of the most beautifully illustrated of all my books, and it's done very well. The artist had a different vision than me, but it was the right vision. I'm not an artist. I'm a writer. Yeah, and that's the best possible response, what you have right there. I'm not an artist. I'm a writer. And I think a lot of people misconstrue that loss of control as an issue when instead what you're getting is a stronger project for having been lent the abilities and the vision of others. Right, and I have two more things to to say about that topic, which are also questions I've gotten asked at conferences. Someone will come up to me and say, oh, heard what you said about not finding an illustrator, but I'm friends with this person and we really want to do the book together. I write, he or she illustrates, we've already got it planned, you know, are we doomed? Um, And the answer is you're not 
doomed, but it's going to be a lot harder. And the reason is it's very rare that you're both going to be equally talented. And so if you put your work together and submit it, the editor might be like, well, I really like the writing, but uh, the art's not there. Or I might love the art, but the writing isn't there. And if you're putting yourself together, a no to one is a no to both. It's much better to work on getting your skills to the professional level first. The other question that I get from some people is, but I want to do both. I write and illustrate. And if you're one of those awesome people, that's great. I mean, I'm not. But if you're just starting out and you have not been published and perhaps don't have an agent, it's still better to lead with your strength. Chances are you're better at one or the other, even if you do both. Chances are you're a little better writer or a little better illustrator. And it's easier if you can lead with that. Like if you're a better illustrator, send out art postcards and try to get matched with a writer. If you're a writer, send your story in and say, I could illustrate this, but I'm open to having someone else do it if you want, because that'll get your foot in the door. And then once you're established, you can say, hey, I also do this. And there are some really wonderful children's book illustrators who don't always illustrate their own stuff. Quite often they do, but sometimes they write a story and the art director says, I think someone else's style would be better for this. And then someone else does. Mm -hmm. I operate in a different format entirely because I write novels. I don't ever think about illustration or anything like that. I've definitely had moments where I would think, gosh, it would be really cool if there was just like a little inset right down here. But I never in my wildest dreams thought, I know, I'll draw that because I can't. I mean, it's terrible. I Even my stick figures have polio. Like, that's what I always tell people. I cannot draw. It's awful. Sometimes when I'm doing a signing, people will ask me to draw something along with my autograph. They'll be like, can you just draw me a little picture? And I'm like, no, I can't. I was like, I would love to be able to do this for you. But the only thing I can draw is a hangman. I put a little heart under my name. It's like a little slightly artistic heart. And that is the only thing I can do. I've sat next to people that illustrate and they sign books and like they've got all their pens and they're sketching and I'm just like, yeah, no, not me. Yeah, no. (laughs) But your line moves a lot quicker. See, so there's (laughs) positives. (laughs) Finally, the pressure of following up an award-winning debut and comparison being the thief of joy. I want to talk about your first book for a second. Your debut, Sophie's Squash, won multiple picture book awards, including the Golden Kite Award, the Charlotte Zolita Award, and the Ezra Jack Keats Award. And those are just the first three I picked. It won a lot. While that's exciting, does it create pressure for your follow-up titles? A little bit. Since Sophie's Squash was my first book, all that cool stuff happened, and I was like, this is amazing. But it wasn't until I was a couple books in, I realized how unusual that was to have my first book do that well. Not all books do that well, and that doesn't make them bad books. I did have a couple moments of like, oh, well, this book didn't get four-starred reviews. It only got two, and this it didn't win this award. I'm good with it because I love Sophie Squash. It was the best way I could possibly have debuted. My other books have done very well, and I'm still selling more. And I hope someday to write something that gets four-starred reviews and, and wins all those awards again. You know, you write it and you send it out into the world and then it's sort of out of your hands. And You hope people love it and admire it and see in it the things that you see in it. But I have learned that if you try to write something that's going to get you awards and critical acclaim, you're probably going to get writer's block and frustrate yourself and frustrate your editor. You got to kind of forget about that and just tell the story that you need to tell at that time. And then it's out of your hands. A phrase that I hear often in publishing is that comparison is the thief of joy. And that's certainly true. And it usually refers to comparing your work or your accomplishments to another author. But I think it can be equally true comparing 
your books to one another and your sales for one particular book against your best selling or your reviews, like you were saying, it can mess you up, I think, mentally. It really can jam up your creative process. If you have one book that has outperformed your others, you were just fortunate enough to have that magic working for you for that particular book. You just have to do your best on every single one and hope that lightning strikes twice. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I have a lot of respect for all of my books. Like one of my books that's one of my favorites is The Quickest Kid in Clarksville. It's historical fiction set in 1960 in Clarksville, Tennessee. It talks about two girls that idolize Olympic sprinter Wilma Rudolph, who won four gold medals in the 1960 Olympics. One of my favorite books. It didn't get any starred reviews, but yet it was a junior library guild selection and it sold well and it won a crystal kite. I mean, you know, you just never know. I think each book finds its own way if you're fortunate and finds the people that hopefully it needs to find. I agree. People often ask me, what is your favorite book that you've written? And honestly, it's my fantasy, Given to the Sea, which has sold the least of all of my books, had, I guess, a lukewarm reception would be the best way to put it. And as far as I'm concerned, that's my book that took the most talent and the most work, and I put the most craft into that book. It just didn't land with the audience because I'm not a fantasy author, and I think my readership looks for something different from me. But that's the book that I'm proudest of. That sounds awesome. I'll have to check it out. If You'll only like it if you like fantasy. I warn people all the time. It's a fantasy. If you read fantasy, you'll be into it. If you're not into fantasy, you're not going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't read fantasy, but I'm willing to give it a try. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Okay. So the last thing I want to ask you about is I know you have got a heck of a year coming up here in 2018. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about all the things you have going on here coming up? Okay. Well, I have three picture books coming out in 2018. The first came out in January. It's called Wide Awake Bear. It's from HarperCollins, and it's about a bear cub that wakes up in the middle of winter when it's supposed to be hibernating and it just cannot fall back asleep. There was that book a couple years ago for desperate sleep-deprived parents, and it was called Go the to Sleep. I'll leave out the word in the middle. <laughs> this, is, this is the book for parents that aspire to, you know, be warm and caring and loving and, and not annoyed and not cranky when their kid doesn't sleep. So this is like the one that when you read it to your kids, hopefully it will make you feel like a better parent and a better person. So that's why <laughs> Buy those two together and put it in a gift basket. Yeah, depending on what kind of a day you're having. The second book comes out in February, and it's called Be Kind, and that's from Roaring Brook Press. And it's a story about all the different ways that you can be kind and how one kind act has the potential to travel around the world and set off more of a response than you thought it might. I love this book. I love all the books coming out in 2018. But this one, it's I just think for our current climate it's so much needed it's multicultural it's diverse it's warm it's about how even if you try it and it doesn't quite work out the way you want you can still be kind you can still do more to be a positive person in the world in august i have a book called loretta's gift coming out from little b press and that's a book about a girl loretta who's getting a new baby cousin and she is absolutely convinced that she has to find the perfect gift for this new baby cousin then it takes her some doing before she figures out what that might be. Very cool. Lastly, where can listeners find you online? If you do any social media or if you have a site that they can find you through, where should they look? I love social media. I probably spend too much time on it. I'm on Twitter at, at Pat Z Miller, and that's me usually tweeting about 
books and writing related things. I'm on Instagram, Pat Z Mill, and that's me talking about books and my cats generally. There's a lot of cat pictures on Instagram. Oh, nice. Uh, I also have a website, www.patzietlowmiller.com. And then I blog with several other picture book writers on a blog called Picture Book Builders. And if you're an aspiring writer or a teacher or a librarian, that's probably the spot to go because we all rotate and we'll pick a picture book that we love and we'll say why we love it and we'll kind of break it down to say like craft-wise what makes this work. What was it about the structure or the language or the arts that makes this book successful? And I really love doing those posts because it's fun to take a book that I love and then kind of go, now, wait, why did this work? And we also do giveaways. So if you want to win picture books, that's another good place to stop by. That's fantastic. It sounds like a wonderful resource for writers and illustrators and educators and everyone. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.